Hello there, welcome back. It's great to be with you again. My name is James Paniki. This is MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories of the moment with the assistance of our reporters around the globe. And so much to get through today. In just over 10 minutes' time, our London-based reporter Jakob Krupa will be with us to walk us through some of the challenges posed by connected cars. How should the data that they generate be collected and handled? How should we manage artificial intelligence used to power self-driving vehicles? What service stations need to be put in place to charge electric vehicles? And if you think these are all questions we can leave in the too-hard basket for another 20 years, well, think again. These are decisions that have to be made and are being made right now. Jakob will bring his usual wit and erudition to the conversation a bit later on. First up, though, Apple's decision to go after images of child sexual exploitation contained on iPhones may not sound particularly controversial. In fact, what's not to like about the fight against child abuse? But the tech company has had to row back its decision, at least for now, amid concerns that delving into the contents of people's phones may be a privacy slippery slope. It's an unusual story, but one that goes to the heart of Apple's hard-won reputation as being a staunch defender of privacy. Dave Pereira covers technology from our offices in Washington, D.C. He has written a great piece of analysis on Apple's very public struggle with this issue, and that piece of analysis is indeed already available at our website. And Dave joins us right now. So, uh, I mean, this is an unusual position for Apple to be in, right? Because, I mean, it's positioned itself as the privacy-friendly Silicon Valley giant. Yes, very unusual. So uh, Apple caused a little bit of a brouhaha uh, when it said that uh, the next version of its operating system, iOS 15, would start scanning for child sexual abuse material. Specifically, the company said that uh, the operating system would scan photos that are synced with its uh, cloud storage service for matches with known images of child sexual abuse material. And it's where the scanning would occur that, that drove many of the concerns. It would occur at the level of the device itself, the actual smartphone, rather than at, say, uh, the level of the cloud storage. It announced that uh, it made this announcement in August, and by earlier this month, it said that it would, quote, take additional time over the coming months to reassess its plan. So though sounds like it, w- it was walking it back. Yeah, but what is the big difference there between scanning photos on a device uh, and scanning photos in the cloud? I mean, from what you're telling me, that appears to be what has caused... Um, this controversy. I mean, isn't scanning photos for illegal content the same no matter where it occurs? At, at first glance, you would you would think so. Um, it, it comes down to once you start looking into it, it, it comes down to questions of agency and ownership. So when you upload something to the cloud, it, it's pretty well understood. Or, or it should be by now, that you're transferring your data to somebody else's computer. And even then, cloud providers aren't pervasively scanning each and every single file you upload for illegal content. Uh, there's no mass scanning going on. Cloud providers look for behavioral signs that something illegal is happening before they start scanning. They have to maintain users' trust too. So child abusers 
uh, or consumers of this child sexual abuse material tend not to use cloud accounts like an ordinary user. They have a very distinct usage profile. And uh, according to what I was told, it looks something like a new account suddenly appears and all the material inside it is very quickly downloaded by a number of users and then the cloud and then the account goes inert. Typical users have a much less spiky usage pattern. Um, if you're a typical user, you're probably accessing your uh, Dropbox account or, or whatever account you have every once in a while, uh, but you're not uh, using it in a very in sudden bursts yeah. like that. So what did Apple want to do? What what idea did it have? So it basically said it was going to start pervasive scanning of every image, uh, essentially. Uh, if you decided not to sync your photos with uh, with the iCloud, which is what it called its store, a cloud storage service, uh, then it said it wouldn't scan your photos. But, but in practice, for most people, you link the photos on your device to your iCloud, and uh, any photo that would have image that would have been uploaded to, to iCloud would have been uh, scanning. So I said that it uh, it came down to questions of agency and 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 ownership. And so if you have this outside company scanning all your your images for potential illegal content, it, it raises questions of well, where could that scanning stop? Uh, once you start scanning for one type of illegal uh, content, what about uh, scanning for another illegal uh, type of illegal content? And and what if it's no longer necessarily illegal content, but content that one government or the other considers to be immoral? Or, or it says that uh, these are images of dissent uh, that are illegal in in our country is, is Apple going to all of a sudden start scanning for those uh, images uh, that would be prohibited under an authoritarian regime? And Apple says that this is slippery slope alarmism. It dis- it dismisses it, but tech giants have a history of making deals with authoritarian countries all the time to preserve market access. So if Apple is genuinely protective of user privacy, why is it setting up this invasive system that, that, that brings into question the, uh, the the agency and the ownership of its own consumers over their own images? Uh, and, and why is it bringing into this system that, that would inevitably come under intense pressure by other governments to to for its scope to expand. Mm. Now, Apple, of course, would defend itself by saying that the system would have indeed respected user privacy. Uh, so, I mean, how do we square charges of invasion of privacy with what Apple is saying about this? So, Apple's system did have checks and balances. Um, and, and we should note that uh, Apple still might roll out some version of this. So, uh, the system it unveiled is that uh, it said it was going to use two different keys to encrypt detected matches uh, of of photos with child sexual abuse material. And those records of those matches could only be decrypted after 30 of them had accumulated for any one user account. And then a human would have to review the photos before the user was reported to uh, authorities. And notably, Apple did not say that it would give in to law enforcement demands to stop encrypting devices or to introduce a a, a backdoor. There was even speculation that uh, this scanning system with its uh, 
two layers of, uh, of encryption was a precursor to full encryption of iCloud smartphone backups. So if that's the case, then Apple would have been able to say to law enforcement, look, we're scanning for this horrendous, terrible material. And therefore, you can't come at us and say that we're uh, hindering law enforcement investigations by fully encrypting uh, backups that are loaded to, to, to the iCloud. And, and of course, uh, law enforcement's standard argument against uh, the rollout of additional encryption is it, is it, it prevents them from finding and uh, uh, arresting uh, uh, child abusers or terrorists or, or what all types of, of criminal activity. So it looks like Apple was trying to set up a system where it could placate law enforcement and then turn around and offer uh, users increased encryption. So it was trying to have its cake and eat it too. It, it must have obviously thought that its reputation for preserving user privacy was such that users would trust it and go along with this system. Uh, but that, that's obviously not what happened. Okay, so look, taking a few steps back, uh, is there anything to suggest that Apple has indeed a big child sexual abuse material problem on its smartphones? So some Apple executives apparently think so. Um, there was a transcript of a uh, chat exchange uh, from uh, 2020 that was... Uh, produced in an unrelated court case. And uh, this, this chat had the anti-fraud chief lamenting that Apple is the greatest platform for distributing child porn. But even he acknowledged in that same chat exchange that free cloud services are, are, are the bigger problem. And there's reason to doubt uh, that something like an iPhone or an Apple account is a major vector for these kind of images. Uh, I, I spoke with one uh, person whose job used to be to actually find this material and take it off offline. And that person told me that uh, child abusers gravitate toward free accounts with very loose identity requirements. And something like an Apple account or an iPhone is very closely binded to your real identity. So, so there's, there's a reason to question whether or not uh, Apple products are a major vector for distributing this type of material. Yeah, but, I mean, Dave, is this something that we can uh, quantify? I mean, is there any sense generally of how prevalent child sexual abuse material is on tech platforms? So real data is hard to come by. I mean, I, I should pause and say that, that even any tech company that even has a relatively small problem with uh, this type of material going through its devices or going through its services still has a problem. I, d I don't want to minimize the, the, the life-changing properties uh, of this kind of material and its victims feel their effects uh, over and over and over again each time the, the material continues to be accessed. But when we're trying to assess the, the enormity of the problem, it, it, it's very likely that what numbers we do have suffer some problems. So there, there's a um, clearinghouse for this type of material in the United States. It's called the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and it's abbreviated as NECMEC. So uh, if you're a tech company, you're actually required by U.S. law, if you detect this material, uh, you have to report it to NECMEC. And every year, the, the center publishes a report on how much, uh, how many reports it received from the tech companies and from which company. 
And what you see is that Facebook, by a huge margin, reports the most material. So I looked at the numbers, and in 2020, it reported 37 times more such material than the next biggest reporting company, which was Google. So you look at numbers like that, and some people say there's an epidemic of child sexual abuse material on, on the internet. The, the problem with saying that there's an epidemic is that that number that Facebook reports each year to, to NECMEC is at least partially a function of its own ability to detect this material. So uh, Facebook has its own algorithm, it's called PDQ, that, that looks and takes down uh, child sexual abuse material. The, the thing that that causes, though, is that if, if you're putting that material up on Facebook, you have your uh, account closed, you're likely to react by just opening a new account or putting up more of it elsewhere. So uh, it, it's it's a case of where the algorithm detects the material, it shuts it down, it gets reloaded, it gets detected and shut down again, and that drives up the numbers. It's not that you have, uh, that Facebook has 37 times more consumers of this material than, than, than Google. It's just that the uh, numbers are driven up by Facebook's own ability to detect this. The, 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 the numbers, in other words, may not betray a, an epidemic so much as just the, the, the ability to actually detect it with, uh, with more ability than before. Uh, there's also a complicating factor that Facebook at one point examined its own reporting and it concluded that about three quarters uh, of the, the material that it reported to NECMEC isn't shared with what it calls malicious intent. For, for example, uh, there may be a case of a user sharing a picture of a minor's genitals uh, thinking that it's a joke or that it's funny. So it still has to report that image to NECMEC, but the material, up to 75% of that material, may not necessarily be evidence of, of a pedophiliac ring operating on Facebook. Okay, Dave, look, this is such an important story. Thank you so much for having covered it and for your ongoing interest in it. Oh, my pleasure. Dave Pereira there speaking to us from Washington, D.C., and Dave's analysis of Apple's vicissitudes is ready for you to read and enjoy. Our website is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Head for the News Hub tab for this and other weekly highlights of our reporting and analysis. This is MLEX's weekly podcast. I'm James Panicki, Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. And, of course, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. We'd love it if you were able to leave a review. Now, as you heard last week in my conversation with reporter Shu Wan, MLEX is starting up a new future mobility service, which will tuck into some of the fascinating regulatory challenges posed by new forms of connected transport. It's a brief with plenty of breadth. And to talk through some of the future mobility issues on the horizon, I'm joined now by our reporter Jakub Krupa from London. Now, Jakub, uh, I mean, where do we even start with this conversation? It's pretty spectacular, and it proves that, you know, when we talk about connected cars, autonomous cars, there's so many elements. And it's connected cars, not only in the sense of 
them being connected to the internet, but also how much connected it is internally. Uh, just let me let me list a couple of things that you know we, we will be writing about, and interestingly, most of them have still no good answers. So, how do you manage you know all sorts of state aid regimes supporting the transition from petrol and diesel? Obviously, that's the focus for, of so many governments to electric vehicles. What implications does it have for energy markets and emissions? How do you then build relevant infrastructure like EV charges, for example? You know, you need to charge your car if you go to see your friends or parents. Or how do you adapt your roads if you want your Tesla or your Ford or your car to see everything and monitor and use the autonomous capabilities and not just crash when taking a corner when in autopilot? All sorts of different questions. And, you know, even if you have a proper road, how do you then regulate it? How do you make sure the car can drive itself and in what situation when should it prompt you to intervene when should it just you know carry on without you having to do something after all that's the point of driverless cars then all sorts of other questions like how do you sort out antitrust issues you have all sorts of mergers acquisitions partnerships collaborations deals some of them very long exclusive deals something we looked at in the uk context um between you know car manufacturers chip providers technology companies service stations how do you manage that relationship how do you look at privacy of the in-vehicle data who knows what who owns what who owns what how all of that can be so you know i just listed you five questions and each of them normally would deserve a whole separate mlex service and that's even before we started talking about how the car actually drives, how they work, how the whole automotive industry changes as a result of this. So uh, I think it's an absolutely massive bit, but also a truly fascinating one. Well, that's right. And it's the kind of stuff that uh, MLEX has been covering up until now. I mean, be it uh, energy, be it antitrust, be it uh, uh, data privacy and protection, it is all uh, part of, of what we do. But tell me something about why we... Uh, care now? I mean, why is this notion of future mobility resonating at the moment? So that's right. And obviously, we have lots of that content already at MLEX, as you just said. I think that's very helpful in the sense that people that have been reading MLEX, they know the foundations, they know um, lots of that stuff happening in the background. And I think it's very telling because I think we are at a very particular moment in this debate about the future of mobility due to all sorts of issues mostly obviously pandemic pressures but you know you have labor shortages job uncertainties shortages of semiconductors and all sorts of other reasons sales of cars are currently fairly low so for example in the uk uh, the total number of registrations in 2021 is 25% below the 10 year average but at the same time we see rapid growth of electric vehicles all sorts of vehicles using batteries and stuff like that so surely there's a question there of customers who are, you know, normally would buy a new car, but they are waiting for that. Um, and they're considering, should we make a switch? Or should we change it because of, you know, environmental concerns, climate concerns, broader discussions about it? Should we change it to electric vehicles? And I think this is very much still under the radar, even though when you look at the actual data, that the number is growing pretty fast. Um, maybe perhaps with the exception of the US, where, it's, where it seems to be a bit more advanced. But I would argue that it's something that is happening very much already now, and it will be even bigger. You know, I can I can see that even by looking at my neighbourhood in London, and that's something I did not pick up on before I started working on this beat, where new electric charging points are popping up on every other street. Shell is transforming an old petrol station just around the corner uh, into what is going to be its first UK EV electric vehicle hub. And sure, I mean, this hub will look just like your normal petrol station, pretty much. So by first glance, 
one would be forgiven for thinking, oh, it's all the same. But the underlying changes, and that's something that I'll be writing about a lot in terms of how that changes, you know, all sorts of modes of transport, infrastructure, how that changes our lives, how it even changes commercial relationships. So, for example, if you're a customer and you have a car, you car, if you just go to, you know, put some fuel in your, 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 in, into your car in terms of petrol, that will take you, what, five, ten minutes? Now, if you charge an electric vehicle, it will take perhaps 30 minutes. So you need a different situation, as well. you need a different context. You need a place to sit down, to maybe read a book, to maybe eat something, to do shopping. So therefore, you have all sorts of changes. For example, you know, uh, big shops, they'll be trying to adapt to that. They'll be trying to, to, to create a situation where you come with your electric vehicle and instead of leaving it on the parking, you leave it on charge. So they make money not only from you buying stuff inside the shop, but also from charging outside the shop. Uh, so it it's really is a pivotal moment in all sorts of ways. And I think it's really important to cover that. Yes, and that's going to be an interesting one to watch, isn't it? Because everyone seems to know that when it comes to petrol stations or gas stations, the the real money is made actually when the customer actually has to go in uh, and you know buys a packet of chewing gum along the way, buys um, in some cases cigarettes in the countries that allow that. All of those things are catering for the person that will now have you know not five minutes or not just a minute to go in and pay, but will have money and time and and presumably a disposable income to. Uh, to, to spend a bit of money in the shops. But tell me something about about that. I mean, you mentioned the neighbourhood station, petrol station, how it's adapting. Uh, tell me something about how uh, EV infrastructure is changing in the UK and is adapting to to make way for this uh, for this revolution. I think that's I think that's particularly interesting in the UK because obviously the UK emerges from Brexit from the pandemic as a kind of vaccination leader of the world as at least that's how it would want to be seen around the world. It wants to redefine itself, shape a new narrative, the, the narrative about global Britain and put itself at the forefront of innovation and that includes obviously electric and connected cars. Uh, we recently did a story with Simon Zakaria explaining how this throws up all sorts of questions about infrastructure but also competition. So if for example, you have questions with these from the CMA, the UK's competition regulator, about Tesla using its own charging infrastructure. Now, the company said it would open it at some point, um, but CMA says, hang on a second, if you don't open your charging infrastructure to others, this will make the whole adoption slower because people will be looking at, you know, why can I why can I just use it while I'm driving next to it? Um, and I think it's worth remembering what's the backstory to this. So the UK is about to introduce a de facto sales ban on new petrol and diesel vehicles in 2030, pushing lots of traditional car makers into thinking about it already now, about producing electric cars. And it's already the, the current government of Boris Johnson is currently spending billions on both developing their EV infrastructure and that includes you know, charging points in lamp posts on the street and stuff like that. Complete magic if you think about it now, but this is something that will be happening in the next few years. Um, investing in network capacity, but also creating incentives for drivers to make that switch. And I think it's particularly critical now because obviously UK will be chairing the COP26 climate conference in Scotland later this year uh, and hoping that green credentials will help the whole narrative and they'll, be, they'll have something to say. So for example, I mentioned lampposts uh, specifically, but I think this is pretty telling. But you know, we we all identify UK with red buses, red phone boxes, and uh, this kind of iconic elements of design. And the UK government openly said that the next iconic piece of design that they want to be associated with the UK is a lamppost charging point. But when you're talking about a lamppost, just explain to us what what you mean. You're talking about 
what a street light, right? That's correct. That that's no street light that would have a kind of special thing that you can take out from it and charge your car with. Now, obviously, one of the biggest problems is to have that kind of availability of places where you live. Ideally, you would want that to be connected to supply from your home. That's probably the cheapest. But also, if in the absence of that, just so you can essentially plug your plug plug your car. Yeah, to a lamppost and 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 get and get some and get some um, charge from that. Uh, obviously, that's an already existing infrastructure. UK is already looking at it from all sorts of different reasons when rolling out five G recently, and the government said as well that we'll be looking at installing equipment within or on the lamppost as well to use that already existing infrastructure. But I think that kind of small changes are even uh, are absolutely um, critical, and you know, obviously there are problems. And I covered them in a series of stories, including um, with Simon. Um, and, you know, UK, for example, is estimated to have about 25,000 electric vehicle charging points at the moment. Um, and various estimates from the Competition and Markets Authority or trade bodies say it will need between 300 and 500,000 by 2030. So in nine years' time, it's what? More than 10, almost 20 times more than currently. And that's to accommodate an expected roughly 30-fold increase of electric vehicles. 30-fold, I mean, that's absolutely transformational figure. And obviously, being in London and focusing on the UK, um, I, I think about the UK, but it's not only UK. It's also the EU and also broader Europe. Just the other day, um, the road transport industry um, in the EU mentioned that um, there are massive differences in within the within the block, with, for example, Netherlands having almost 50 charges for each 100 kilometres of road, while in Poland, eight times bigger, not too far to the east, this figure is at one charging point by 250 kilometers. And now, you know, I'm not one to talk about range anxiety and the sorts of problem of that. Clearly, the situation is improving, but probably even most diehard fans of electric vehicles will slightly fret knowing that the next charger is 250 kilometers away. Um, so I think that, you know, that will completely change the way we use cars, the experience of traveling. Uh, will reshape the automotive industry. Will reshape the infrastructure, the road infrastructure around us, as we talked just now. Um, but I think what's critical, and that's why I think our service is really important now, is that the early adopters are tempted by big premium and winning big if they get there first. And any laggards will potentially or could potentially face existential almost problems in not so distant future. So I mentioned the petrol station before that that that's Shell and Shell, for example, not really a usual electric vehicles company, not something you would think about. They're also investing in 50,000 on street charging points in the UK by 2025 for a dedicated infrastructure provider. That tells you a lot about how differently they think about their own business now. Um, and BP is looking at automated in-vehicle payments. So for example, you can pay for your fuel without necessarily getting out of the car. Again, big, big, big change in terms of how they think about um, their business. And I think that will be only uh, getting quicker and getting more important in the coming years. And Jakob, of course, this beat is interesting because it's not just about electric vehicles. There are also questions about uh, automation and also levels of connectivity. And that brings us closer to the data privacy and security part of, of, of the job that we uh, carry out here at MLEX. That's absolutely right. And again, it's fascinating for me because, you know, uh, b before jumping in this beat, you would occasionally see mainstream media picking up on things like videos of Teslas driving on the highway with everyone sleeping in the car and like, how does it work? Why, how is it driving itself? 
and, and you know people will be like oh that surely is some sort of bizarre joke like preposterous version of the future that's not what we were promised in like all these movies about that we'll be able to sleep in our tesla on the highway and in fact that that could happen and the regulators are increasingly asking these questions so for example the uk is about to allow uh, what's called automated lane keeping systems to be used in live traffic something that even a few years back would look you know like a science fiction scenario when i would just tell you like, i can just change the lane and kind of will do it itself from your help keep the lane the, the country's law commission is working on a larger um uh, outline of industry regulation with some absolute mind-blowing questions there so the report will come towards the end of the year probably november or december and that the, the idea is you know what do you do when cars are fully out they are not now there's like five or six different levels of automation we are now at level two or three if you're really pushing it but what happens if we finally reach that full level of automation. And, you know, it's not just technical questions about traffic flows, road safety, liability, insurance, your usual concerns about, you know, radars on my Tesla not picking something up. But I think, interestingly, these questions about automation, they also put all sorts of ethical questions. You know, for example, what do I expect from my car to do if there's a human life at stake? The whole trolley dilemma. And and the question there, right, is 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 an ethical one of, you know, if it uh, finds itself confronting a situation in which it has to run over two people or three people or a busload of children or whatever, what kind of decisions will the car make? And that, that gets us into really interesting territory about artificial intelligence, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's exactly the kind of the trolley dilemma adapted to our times, in a sense. Uh, and I think in that sense, that's really interesting. And also, you know, one of the fundamental issues with, with cars ever was that, you know, if something goes wrong, you you blame the driver for that you can charge the driver the driver will face consequences now if the car is driving itself how how do we deal with that uh, so all all sorts of problem with that and i think it's it will be really interesting to see how it how it, how it works and then and that's again before we go to all sorts of really science fiction situations like in one of the reports i read um people from transport for london there's a company that runs um all sorts of transport transport um, modes in london uh we're talking about you know cars in the future potentially cruising around the city 24 7 almost never parking uh, just getting charged and then you can kind of summon it to you and it will come and pick you up uh, like a taxi and Uber would do. Again, how does that change the way that we organize our lives in cities? How does that change your expectation of a car? Uh, you may say, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but clearly someone is thinking about it enough to talk about it in the parliamentary report. Um, so, so it's really interesting. And again, obviously, as well, coming uh, as a former uh, privacy reporter, you have all sorts of questions there. But you mentioned that earlier again. You know, access to the e-vehicle data. Can it just be the police, my insurer, my family? Or maybe it can be used commercially. What if what if I drive past the cafe? The cafe goes like, "We know, we know what coffee you like. Stop here, and you, you're gonna get it now for fifty percent." And the, the price. Um, you know, what sorts of apps you can have? The how they use the how they use the data. We know that uh, literally in the European Union this week. Um, they'll be discussing this and starting consultations on this. So again, it may sound very futury and kind of very, you know, uh, yeah, something that will only happen in, in several years, but I think it's happening now. And it's as scary and completely unpredictable as it is fascinating. And I feel really privileged to be covering this beat. And I think there's lots and lots and lots to talk about. Yes, Jakob, it's a, an absolutely fascinating beat. So I'm um 
So excited at the prospect of you and Shuan and the rest of the team uh, churning out some really good material on this. So uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, speaking to me today and I'll speak to you again very, very soon. Jakob Krupa is a London-based reporter here at MLEX. He's one of the journalists taking on this Future Mobility project and we'll have a special report on Future Mobility coming out next week, so definitely something to watch out for there. And we'll post Jakob's recent reporting on this issue at our website. You know the address already, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, dot com. And sadly, this is where we have to leave things for today. We'll be back in your feed next week at around the same time. I hope you can join me then. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you very much for your company. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now. Bye for now.